like waves that crash on your face. It knocks you like wind in a storm on the sea. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is a big one. This is uh, one of our top five most requested guests. He's the front man of one of my top 10 all-time favorite bands. He was one of my dream interviews. It happened, there must be a God because this band just released a new album. It is Dave Shelzel, front man for The Ocean Blue. So, most people know, The Ocean Blue have been around for about 30 years. Their debut album came out in 1989. It's this beautiful mix of the Smiths and the Cocteau Twins, highly literary. You can tell these are very intelligent young guys playing upon uh, their influences and writing beautiful music in the, in the process. They just last week put out their first album in many years, Kings and Queens, Knaves and Thieves. And this was the first single off of that album, Kings and Queens. So Dave and I managed to talk about pretty much the whole career. We didn't have a ton of time, so we didn't get to go quite as deep as I would have liked. But we discussed the new album, what goes into it. You know, he's a regular guy now. He's a lawyer. He lives up in Minneapolis. And so what does it take for a lawyer, a family man, to, you know, stop his life and put out new music? We also discuss each one of their albums, kind of what was going on. I have a lot of questions about a couple of them. It might even get a little awkward in here. I'm sorry about that. I'll explain at the end. But anyway, needless to say, The Ocean Blue are one of my favorite bands of all time. I know I say that a lot, but I absolutely mean it this time. And I just love them. And I'm so grateful that he talked to me. And I have to give a big thanks to our buddy Noel Fogelman from the Reliving My Youth podcast for helping me get in touch with Dave and his people. Okay? Hope you enjoy this. Uh, He called me from his home in Minneapolis. Well, for starters, I've been trying to make this happen for like four years, so I am so <laughs> glad. I've, ha- I think I'm a little nervous that you don't realize you're talking oh, to the guy right. who's been no. stalking you oh, for like yeah. four years. No, not at all. But I now that you say that, I I remember. Have we corresponded over email? We did once. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you reply one out of like every ten emails that I send. <laughs> but anyway, you said years ago, you were like, if you know, if you ever see we have something to to promote, tell me. And so I reached out whenever you went on a tour, the five billion and diamonds project, whatever little nugget I could find. I, but I never heard back. But anyway, so we're doing it now. Thank you for doing this with me now. <laughs> well, I appreciate your persistence sure. and patience with me. That's okay. Um, the thing I want to know. So last October, I live in Denver, Colorado, but I'm from Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, yeah. I, I did a road trip last October to Salt Lake to see the Ocean Blue do a live 
uh, a free concert. I think you were celebrating like the first or second anniversary of some radio station there. And uh, mm -hmm. you announced from the stage that you had a new album coming out and everything like that. Why is it that the Ocean Blue has a has such a strong fan base in Utah? Have you ever considered this? Why is this the case? I went to BYU. I'm from Utah. I've known you all my life. Why is this the case? Well, I I guess I should be asking you that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess there's a couple ways I could explain that. I mean, we've played Salt Lake City since the beginning from our earliest national tours. And it definitely stands out as a as a city and frankly a state where the band always did really well. But I don't know that it was like outsized. It probably was outsized relative to the size of the city in the state, but not necessarily to other parts of the country where we had similar, you know, enthusiastic mm. followings. You came to a show. I mean, we hadn't played in Salt Lake, mm -hmm. I don't think, for like something like 20 years. So yeah. it was the first time we were back in a long, long time. And, uh, you know, the free show, I think you had to win tickets to, to yeah. be a part of that show. But I don't know. I, uh, I, you know, it's uh, the phenomenon you described, though, is true. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It, uh, Utah has always, especially Salt Lake City, has always had a really vibrant alternative rock um, kind of culture, even, you know, going back to the 80s. And there are a lot of artists, I mention this all the time on here, people like Howard Jones make sure to come through town just about every year. And he sells out these giant amphitheaters and everything like that. And uh, I've just always wondered why it was that, you know, we took a liking to the Ocean Blue so much. I mean, I know why I did, but I don't know why, you know, the state, you're so beloved over there. But uh, anyway, in fact, that goes, I had a question for you. The live version of There is a Light That Never Goes Out on the Peace and Light EP, was that recorded in Utah? not entirely sure it, it um, explains where <clears throat> it was recorded on the Sire EP, Peace and Light. I know one of the songs we recorded was recorded in Salt Lake and one was recorded, I believe, in Chicago. Mm. Which song 
was which I don't remember. Okay. Um, I don't have a hard two copy. Live songs. Okay. Yeah, there's two two live songs, but I think I think the liner notes are on our website. I'll look um, them up. <clears throat> yeah, and and uh, either don't believe everything you hear or there's a light was recorded in Salt Lake. Okay. Always been curious. Anyway. Um, yeah. So let's get into the fun stuff. Now, this new album of yours, uh, Kings and Queens, Knaves and Thieves. I just got it this morning and I love it. So I've, I haven't had a full chance to absorb it. But it is always such a welcome gift to the world to have more Ocean Blue music put out there. When you and I met once before, and I know you're a lawyer these days, what does putting out new music and focusing on writing and recording, how, what does that mean to you today? Does it disrupt your life? Does it put lawyering on the back burner? How do you fit it all in? Oh, boy. Um, well, I guess the way I think about it is I'm, I'm not a one-dimensional person. Mm. I always have liked a lot of different things. So even in the days where we may have met where I was on a major label on tour, that's not all I was doing. I was going to school for a long time. Uh, season of those years. Um, you know, as an undergrad, I went to grad school. <clears throat> I was interested in you know, reading books and building mm-hmm. things. And, you know, so for me, music has always been a part of who I am, a very important part, if not one of the most important parts of who I am, but it's not the only thing. So when I became a lawyer, some of the, maybe the distribution of the pie chart of my life changed and that music became a smaller thing in terms of the time I could devote to it certainly not the passion or the interest I have in it. So to me, it's, it is a balance. And there are times where it gets kind of crazy. Most days I am, I'm doing my lawyer guy thing, but a lot of my time I'm doing musical stuff too. Uh, Not as actively as when I was a young guy and, you know, we don't play as many shows. We don't put out records as frequently, but I'm almost always tinkering around with music at home um, most of us have a home studio and work there and, you know, we play a fair bit. We do it differently. I mean, we fly to shows now. We don't, we don't get on a tour bus and go away for three months <clears throat> and we make records differently too. You know, we don't go into big expensive studios in London or the Bahamas. We, yeah. we do it, do it mostly on our own. Would you have rather, or would you have been satisfied uh, maintaining a long career as a professional musician. I mean, my and I ask that because I feel like most people, when they get into this business and they start putting out records, that's like the dream. That's the empirical, that's the best. But then as careers start to fade or they get, you know, less urgent or whatever, people have to kind of find new things and differentiate and pivot and everything. Yeah. And you've yeah. done really well at that. But is that, were you happy with that? Like you're just exploring other parts of your personality or... If you could have, would you have stuck with it forever? Well, you know, I guess it depends the day you ask me that question. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I kind of go back to what I said a moment ago. I mean, to me, a one-dimensional life is kind of boring. If all I did was music all the time and I didn't have time for anything else, that would be kind of boring. <clears throat> if all I did was be a lawyer or a woodworker or whatever, that would get tiresome pretty quickly. When, when I was a younger I always thought that when I turned 30, I'd, I'd get out of music and do something else. Hmm. And it kind of almost worked out that way by default because the music business was falling apart in the late nineties. And, you know, I, I realized we needed to do something different as a band, but I do feel a little bit more 
fortunate than other people maybe uh, who have had similar situations to mine where you had a season of life where you were devoting a lot of time to being a, a, a recording and performing artist and you achieved some measure of success and now all of a sudden you're in midlife and that's left you behind and you don't, you don't know what to do with yourself. I mean, that yeah. hasn't, I haven't faced that because maybe I never put that much stock in what I did before. Mm. And I put a lot of stock in what I can do with it now because um, there, there aren't huge expectations around what I do. I mean, yeah. we have fans that care and that's mm. wonderful. And we're able to, you know, balance the books of the ocean blue because we can play shows where people show up and we can yeah. sell records, but it's not an enterprise that, that makes me a, a wealthy man with mm -hmm. a house in the South of France. Right. <laughs> right. Lawyering on the other hand. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I understand that. I wanted to ask, going back to the beginning, I remember very well when those buzz band uh, snippets and, and ads and whatnot would come on MTV and hearing between something and nothing. Um, you guys getting a lot of pub at the time. I had Mark Opitz on here last year and um, he and I, I, we discussed his whole career, but I especially wanted to talk about you guys. You probably know this, I'm sure, in his book and in our interview, he told the story of how he flew from Australia to New York to beg Seymour Stein for the opportunity to produce your debut album. And um, this is one of the, this is maybe the most important producer now in Australian rock history. He's begging to come work with you. How did that happen? And what was it like working with Mark Opitz? Wow. It's funny. I did. I heard that clip. Someone sent me that clip. I didn't realize that was your interview. That's uh, really cool. Yeah. And when I heard it, honestly, I, I did not know that story. Um, really? <laughs> no, Mark never shared that with me. Other, I mean, he was enthusiastic about working our record, but it was super fun to hear that story. I'll be perfectly honest with you. We were, we loved Mark. I think Mark did a great job on our yeah. record, but he, he kind of came after us. <laughs> really? um, we didn't, we didn't like go after him in the same manner. He was someone who was suggested to us and we thought, Oh man, yeah, we love a lot of records he's done. We met with him. We really liked him. Yeah. Um, he was a really well-balanced, thoughtful producer. We were goo ga goo about working with John Porter because John Porter, um, who could do a few tracks for a record, but not the whole record, had, had produced one of our favorite bands of all time, The Smiths, yeah. and um, was in Roxy Music. And so with John, it was more us pursuing him, although he was, he was into the record too. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm so glad we got to work with both of those producers on our first record. Um, they were so different, and I learned so much from both of them. Yeah, it was a, it was a amazing experience. My only regret was that I was a teenager at the time. <laughs> well, that's true for a lot of us, right? We regret things. Yeah, youth we is wasted on the young. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Um, now, I've always been curious when the second album comes out, and I feel really dumb saying this. I never know exactly how to say that word. Tell me how you say the, the name of your second album. Cerulean. Okay. I never know if that's... If, if, yeah. Right. Cerulean. Okay. I didn't know if it was Cerulean. Cerulean. Yep. Shade yes. of Blue. Shade of Blue. It, um, the title of that record... Um, actually, we had a sort of a, a, title, tra a title track on that record called Cerulean. Great. The working title of that song is called Blue Skies, and it's still... Sometimes we write that on the set. Um, but my mother 
uh, you know, had one of those word of the day calendars. Uh-huh. And um, my mom was a, and is a, my biggest fan. Uh-huh. And she, she in those days, you know, I'd always run my music by her. And um, she was, she, she was talking to me about the title of the record. And I was like, boy, we really don't have a good one. And she gave me this word of the day, cerulean, which is a shade of blue, sky blue. Uh-huh. Uh, as a matter of fact, and I, I wasn't familiar with the word. Um, of course, now every time I've seen it since, I, it stands out to me. But, right. but yeah, my mother's responsible for the name of that record. And, and I'm so glad because I think it, it really kind of set us on this path of yeah. thinking about the color blue and the color blue flows in and out of a lot of our works. Sure and does. of course, our last album is another shade of blue. So. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah, I'm I'm never sure if I'm saying that word right. And so I didn't even bother trying. I thought what I'll just ask <laughs> the source. I'll ask Dave how it's done. So when Cerulean comes out, and I actually prefer that one. I think that might be my favorite. Well, I don't know. That changes all the time. But anyway, you know, Ballerina Out of Control, that's a great song. You've got videos playing. The world came crashing down. I don't remember though very well. Was did, was was that viewed as a? Um, were you happy with the reception? I, I mean, are you happy with the reception in general of those first two or three albums? Are you thinking this is great? We're building something here, or is it the alternative where it's like, well, we're not breaking through on like the pop charts? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. You know, I'm trying to go back to where I was in my mind at the time. I think. When we signed with Sire, that was reaching the pinnacle. Mm -hmm. At least for me, I was not interested in commercial success. I wanted to be like my hero bands that weren't on the charts, that were on college radio. And there was a format of radio that was popular at the time called Modern Rock. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of the commercial version of college radio. And of course, we were on those charts and did quite well. but yeah, Smith and Echo and the Bunnymen and New Order were not pop bands in the United mm-hmm. States when I was growing up. You had to search for their records. And of course, many of them became huge later on. But um, So I wasn't interested in commercial success. So mm-hmm. I really thought about our records in terms of like, oh, can we do a tour? Mm-hmm. And do people show up? Do they know our music? Do people buy our records? And we sold hundreds of thousands of records for Sire. And <clears throat> that would, in my mind, that was success. The third record we did, was the record that Warner Brothers really tried to push into the pop realm. And so we had a we had a video in regular MTV airplay and we had a Sublime, you know, right? Yep, Sublime yeah. and that was on the chart. 
number one record in Salt Lake City, as I recall. I'm sure um, it was. Everyone I knew but, had um, I think that's kind of when we hit a plateau as a band in terms of commercial success. We also went through a renegotiation with, with Sire that actually didn't work out, and then we left and went to a different major label. Um, I regret that more than I regret anything else in my career. I, I wish we had stayed at Warner Brothers with Seymour and huh. Sire. Um, that's that's the only thing I think I can say that. I really that's regret. fascinating. What can what what caused you to not do it? Were they not offering enough money? Was it were they not putting enough muscle you know, behind you? What caused that? Oh, there were a lot of cross currents happening. I mean, that was the beginning of a paradigm shift. Probably shouldn't even say it was the beginning. It was around the time of the paradigm shift and what was alternative music yeah. and in uh, modern rock kind of was becoming much harder. Grunge was really blooming and kind of pulling bands like us off of the charts and off of the, you know, promotional dollars of the labels. And, you know, we went to a la another label where people really didn't know who we were. They didn't really understand our background. Our A&R guy did, and the president mm -hmm. of the label did, but, you know, we didn't really have the same kind of support. Um, and that was, those were that was kind of tough because we also wanted to do a different kind of record in those days, a more mm -hmm. guitar oriented record. And so it was a little tricky. Um, but one of the fun stories of our career is that we have since reconnected with a lot of people at Warner brothers and Sire. Yeah. We did these reissues of the vinyl on our label. We have a couple of really cool allies in that organization now. Great. Most of the people we work with are long gone, but um, that's been kind of fun in recent years. Good. Now, when I, um, one of the, the time that we met was at an in-store at Tower Records in 2002, I think, or three, uh, in Mountain View, California, I think. And uh, later that night, you guys played at the bottom of the hill, I believe. And that was the first time I'd ever seen you in concert. And I remember oh. so well at that show, you had mentioned... You put, and I can never remember what song it was, but you were now you were introducing a song off of the See the Ocean Blue album, and you said this song is one of our favorites off of one of our album See the Ocean Blue, which is one of our favorites. What song was that? Was it uh, Bitter? Was it Whenever You're Around? I can't never remember which one that was. Well, you know, I don't know because I don't remember that show or saying that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Saying that makes me think that it was a song called Slide. Slide. Okay. Um, I wonder.
felt like that was one of the best songs we'd ever written and could have been a huge commercial success. Um, I definitely like Bitter. I definitely like Whenever You're Around. I think that's that's the ocean blue at its rocky best. Yeah. Both of those songs I'm very proud of. I know Chet, the DJ in Salt Lake City, he, he loves Bitter. That's, I think, one of his favorite songs. Good. <laughs> but um, I think the song Slide is, is to, in my mind, as a songwriter, one of my favorites and I love the recording of it. And it's one we are going to play on this coming tour too. Good, good. Yeah, that was good. So the, the see the ocean blue album is, you know, you're not on sire anymore. It's a little rockier. It's more guitar driven. There's less of that Cocteau twins, ethereal feel happening. And I've always wondered if that was the, if now you saying you regret leaving sire, maybe this isn't the case, but I wondered if by Lee, if you felt hemmed in and you thought, Oh, now we're now we can do what we really want to do, and we want to rock. And Sire's not making us sound like the Cocteau Twins anymore. Not that that's a bad thing, but you know what I mean. We wanted to grow, and this is our growth album. This is our album where we're going to change things up. Is that why you like that one so much? No, um, okay. I didn't. Well, I guess put it this way: I wouldn't articulate it the way you did. I mean, okay. we weren't looking, we weren't looking to grow as much as I felt like. Um, it's true that we wanted to do a more guitar oriented record. I mean, the other big shift that happened in those years is um, our keyboard player left who, uh, who also played sax and our guitar player, our second guitar player on tour joined the band, uh, Eddie, who's mm-hmm. obviously still with us. And, and so we really, I know that I wanted to make a record that sounded more guitar oriented. Okay. Um, I didn't, I wasn't trying to get away from the constraints of Sire because frankly, no one, no one seen from Seymour on down at Sire ever told us we needed to sound a certain right. way Good. or we need to do something artistically. One of the great things about that label was that Seymour only signed bands that he felt had that their own sound figured out. Now, Seymour could pick songs and could tell you whether that song was a hit or not, but he didn't try to get in and micromanage band sound mm-hmm. or get them to reformulate or change. Um, so, so for me, I mean, in the mid-90s, I started to just get into a lot more guitar music, more rock music from mm-hmm. the 60s and 70s. And so, and with Eddie joining the band, I just loved the way Ed played guitar and I wanted to exploit that more. So the songs on that record have a harder edge, mostly just because that was what was interesting me. Mm. And um, not so much that I wanted to distance myself from the past. Um, I think our producer may have wanted to push us in that direction, but I wasn't interested in necessarily reinventing the ocean blue or pushing okay. us in another direction. I was just interested in guitar music, I guess. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I've always been curious. Was When was it... 
when did it start to um, come to fruition or to occur to you that a life as a pri primarily making a living as a professional musician was not going to continue? Would it have been around this time? Um, were you already, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, cause we like to talk yeah, about the transitions sure. on here when people, you know, they're giving it their all and then the music business changes and they can't, they wake up one morning and they're like, you know what? I can't pay my bills as a rock star anymore. I got to do something else. When would that have yeah. been for you? For me, it wasn't the financial picture as much mm -hmm. as it was sort of what's going on in my life picture. Uh. And I think I told you that, <clears throat> you know, when I was, when I was a teenager and we signed with Warner Brothers, um, and then after that, well, maybe I didn't tell you this. When I was a teenager and we signed, um, my parents, who were very supportive, uh, gave me some advice, and that was, you know, this is wonderful and amazing, and but don't neglect the other parts of your life. You know, you're a bright young man. You should still get your college degree, and you should think, ahead to what life might be when you're 30 or 40 or 50. Um, and that was really good advice. Mm -hmm. And so when I, during the years, the major label years, I went to school when I could, um, mm -hmm. checked into Penn state and, um, took classes that interested me and over time got my undergrad. And, <clears throat> you know, and I had always thought by the time I reached age 30, it would probably be time for me to move on and do something else. I didn't mm. want to be sort of some old guy, you know, <laughs> geriatric dancing around trying to be cool right, on stage, right. which is very ironic to say that right now. Um, um, you but, don't dance that much. So you still look pretty cool <laughs> up there. <laughs> well, thank you, my kind sir. Sure. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I always felt like, you know, there would come a time where I would, would make that transition. So, so that's one way to answer your question. The other way is that when, when we completed, when we finished See the Ocean Blue, um, there were a couple things that happened or didn't happen with that record that had always happened to us. And I realized that the music business landscape was changing <laughs> dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we routinely got huge budgets for videos. All of a sudden that was gone. Yeah. We got tour support when we needed it. All of a sudden that was gone. You know, people were talking about Napster and people were talking about <clears throat> people were getting fired left and right at major labels. Um, and, you know, I was reading about what the changes that were happening in the music business. And I thought, you know, um, what we do at the level we do it is not sustainable. And um, it probably makes sense for me to take a break. Mm. And so I did. Mm. Okay. What about you personally? Did you, are you married? Did you have kids? Were you getting married at the time? Well, was that a poll? Yeah. And so the personal life factors into it as well. So, you know, part of the way that, that we were able to be so successful was to devote a lot of time um, to what we were doing. So go away for three months and make a record, go away for three months and be on tour. Um, I'm like, I say, I, I, I didn't have a hit single that allowed me to retire to the South of France and live yeah. off royalty for the rest of my life. You know, we, we made our money from, from, from working pretty hard and that was not conducive to a healthy family life. So that mm -hmm. certainly factored into me thinking about other things. Mm. Okay. Um, 
How do you, <clears throat> excuse me, how do you feel about Davy Jones' Locker album? Because it's kind of, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, it's got some naysayers out there. You know what I mean? Maybe you know that, maybe you don't. Um, no, you know, um, no, I guess I, I don't. I, I, I mean, <clears throat> Davy Jones' Locker is, is basically the record we started for uh, Polygram or Mercury, the label we were on before mm -hmm. we left. And it kind of just, it's really the demos for another Ocean Blue record that we just said, well, let's just call it a record and put it out. Mm. Um, so that's what we did. Um, and we worked with an indie label on that for a while called March Records. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, actually a great guy, Skippy, uh, contacted me when I was in law school and he said he wanted to put the thing out and I was not sure what I wanted to do with it. And um, he did and supported us uh, doggedly for, for a number of years that we worked with him. And um, so I, I kind of look at it as the name would suggest is kind of a lost record mm. of songs that are kind of in their infancy, recordings certainly that are in their infancy. Um, that makes I wouldn't, sense. I wouldn't, so, so to me, I've never been bothered by what it is. I, mm. I, it's, it's not a B-side record. To me, it's kind of, <clears throat> it's like, I don't know if you've ever seen these sort of unfinished paintings by masters, not that we're masters or anything, but there's a certain interesting thing when you look at the underlying elements or, you know, the unfinished state of the work of art, it can be really interesting. So I, in some ways I kind of feel that way about that record with the exception of some of the songs on it, I think are mm -hmm. totally great and totally done. Yeah. Like the song Denmark, I wouldn't yes. change a thing about it. To me, that okay. song's totally done. Yeah, I like that song a lot too. I um, I think what it is, I, you saying that about it being not entirely finished, I guess, or however you described it, it, that makes a lot of sense. I think what it is is that <laughs> devout Ocean Blue fans like me, we uh, you know, we we crave more from you, at, at whenever we can get it, and so. It's not that it needs to be the best, but you want it to feel satisfying. And there was this feeling with that album that was kind of like, huh, um, okay. You know, it's not uh, it's not hitting me maybe as strongly as some of the others. And and I say that uh, as someone who, you know, a lot of my friends who were also Ocean Blue mem uh, fans would say similar things. And I, and I think that's why the, the Waterworks EP is viewed as such a major comeback because it's like, ah, oh, 
this is what we love about the ocean blue are songs like this were you you know what i mean i mean i don't know if you feel like the the water that waterworks i mean pedestrian contributions like Ticket to Wyoming are such wonderful songs. When you're writing those and you're recording them, are you thinking, are you in like a really good creative stage? Are you thinking, boy, things are flowing right now. This feels so good. Bought a ticket to Wyoming Tossed another life away Left and a lot of things I didn't I know your daddy didn't like me Said I wasn't up to any good So I hightailed it to Wyoming Cause I could Maybe it's more work than like, I don't know, honestly. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear your impressions. I mean, in some ways, the time we did Davy Jones's was a much more creative time um, than Waterworks. Waterworks um, Waterworks was an album that we were trying to make that I didn't have time to really work on. And I leaned pretty heavily on Eddie, who did have a lot of time for... I mean, that, that Waterworks is a half David, half Eddie record. It is. I mean, you can almost split it down the middle. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's some of Ed's finest writing ever. Yeah. And, um, and uh, you know, it's probably some of my most mediocre writing ever. Oh, I disagree, but, but it, I hear you. Well, I'm, I'm glad you do. But, but yeah, so, in, you know, it was an unfinished record that we decided to put out as an EP. 
the big EP, and then later decided to actually finish it and reissue it, which we did, I don't know, within the last five years. Yeah. And um, so, so yeah, I, I mean, and I, I don't think any of us saw it as a comeback as oh, much as a continuation of like, I mean, I think after we, you know, when we were on March and started doing things again, um, we, we, we sort of settled into a way where we could make it work, uh-huh. uh, a way of making records and touring that balanced out with the rest of our lives. It kind of subtracted out the, the bad stuff and the mm-hmm. stressful stuff and kind of left in the goodies. Yeah. And that's what we still try to do. Okay. Um, so we're going on, on down the assembly line here. Let's talk about Ultramarine. Uh, once again, it's been a few years, but it's such a welcome um, reminder of the beautiful things that made the ocean blue so you know important to some of us. If you don't know why you can't see me any other way, if you don't know why you can't see me. At this stage in your life, you're lawyering, you're being a dad, you're, I think you live in Minneapolis. Am I right about that? Correct. Yep, okay. I do. Um, so when you're living your normal life, when you put out an album like Ultramarine, do you set aside time to create an album? Or these, do you have like 50 song ideas that you just record in your home studio whenever you feel like it? And eventually you think, I think we got something here and we'll just put those out. How does it work at this stage for you? Yeah, it's more of the latter. I mean, the way we make music now and the way that I write is a constant thing. It's part of the fabric of life. Okay. You know, I don't go away for three months to write. <clears throat> we don't go away for three months to make a record. Um, I work on records. When I say records, I work on songs and recording them. Uh <clears throat> When, when I when I can and when I want to and because I have a home studio and technology recording technology has evolved so much since the early days when we were making records I can do that and it's um, super fun and yeah. so the process of making records for us now is really like you described where we work on songs all the time work on recordings all the time and when we get to a point where we feel we have enough or I can kind of stitch together something that sounds like a record or an album, then we put it out. Um, <clears throat> so that's that was the process for Ultramarine. That's the process for Kings and Queens, Maze and Thieves. And I think it'll be you know, kind of our go forward process unless 
something really changes in our lives. Okay. Okay. Something I, you know, I've been, we're going to sprinkle in snippets of the, some of the songs that we mentioned, and I've been curious to ask you, when you look back over your career, what are some of the, what have, what are some of the, your proudest moments? I know no one likes to answer, you know, the favorite songs or whatever, but is there a deeper track or a moment, even whether it's in a single or not, where you think, you know what, this, there's a story behind how that came to be, and it's really interesting or it means something to me. What are a couple of those songs? So songs or moments or things? Well, maybe moments within songs. I, you know, I just want—I wanted to get your thoughts on some of these. On the first record, um, I think one of the moments uh, in the bit of songs that I'm, I'm most that I, that just kind of still within chills up my spine sometimes is the guitar solo in between something and nothing. much fun to play live and um one of those things i don't know where it came from and i've deconstructed and thought about a lot um because i play it nearly every show we do and just living in that reverberated shiny space where i'm playing things that you know basically any first year guitar student can play i'm not a great player but they really it really worked um and really, the three-note motif in that song is just works well, it sure does. and it's been the foundation of a lot of other stuff we've done. And on that record too, I I love uh, I love the saxophone part from uh-huh. Drifting Falling, which was you know mostly written on my guitar.
Really? And and I played it for Steve, and he's like, oh, wow, we should put that on sax. And he got it right away, and it's been a classic ever since. Yeah. And he did such a brilliant job That's playing funny. on that tune. That's one of the things I asked Mark Opitz specifically was, on a song like Drifting Falling that begins with this incredible sax riff, who's who makes that decision? Is it a Mark Opitz decision? Is it the Ocean Blue saying, hey, we have an idea for this song? Where did, where did little, you know, special sprinkles of pixie dust like that, where did they come from? So I'm glad to hear you tell that story. That's cool. Yeah, and the first album in particular, we, we had been playing those songs for a few years. I mean, I wrote them all throughout high school and we played practice and play them as a band for years so the, in terms of the arrangement like that john mm-hmm. and mark didn't change a heck of a lot mm. they added i mean particularly john added layers of guitars and but the basic arrangements stayed the same and mark in particular was very impressed with how our demos sounded and he was like we just really need to capture that yeah well and, and i think he did um yeah. Okay. Um, on the new album, and again, I've only been able to pass through it once, but... Oh, you the... know what? Let, let me just, yeah. uh, let me just say, say one more thing, because I know you mentioned you really like Cerulean. For me, <clears throat> Cerulean is, is an album. Yes. So the first record feels more like a collection of songs, mm. a youthful collection of songs that all kind of stand on their own. But... Cerulean to me is more of a mood from beginning mm. to end, and I wanted it that way. I wrote that record within a much, much shorter time span, really influenced more by sort of 4AD bands and ambient mm-hmm. kind of music. And and so there's a more of an atmosphere to that one, more of uh, a flow. Yeah. And that, that feels really cool to me. Is there a moment on there that you're particularly proud of? Um... <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I uh, that's that album is a moment for me. Uh-huh. Um, I love, uh, I love a lot of things on that record. Yeah. I'm not funny. I'm funny enough. I'm not happy with several aspects of the production, but really? I still, I still love it. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's uh, like I said. I think that one most of the time goes in is my favorite album of yours. Going back to I was going to mention on the new album, "Love Doesn't Make It Easy," is uh, yeah. st- stood out immediately from from the new album as this kind of funky, this sort of loping uh, drum track on it that was so cool. I really, really dig that song. Love doesn't make it easy on us Love doesn't make it easy on us Our river runs into its sea Its lightning splits open
What's the plan now for Kings and Queens? I know you're going on a on a little tour later this year. In fact, I think you're playing Salt Lake again in December, I believe, which means I'm going to have to make another road trip over there happily. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So what, when you put, you know, what's what are the hopes when you put out new music this these days? Did you say hopes? Hopes. Where do you hope? What oh. do you hope happens? You know, oh, is it just I, to I kind hope, of purge yourself? I hope people show up. Yeah. <laughs> I guess one way I'd answer is that, you know, we don't have grand expectations. Um, in some ways, I don't have any expectations for mm -hmm. for what happens after we put out the record. Um, I, I, I hope that the music is meaningful to people, that it connects with people on a personal level and a deep level, like mm -hmm. the music I love connects with me. Yeah. I think that's what I want more than anything is like, I want people to fall in love with a record mm -hmm. and, and for it to be important to them and maybe link up with a, a season of life for them. Yeah. Like my favorite records do and, and maybe speak to them in a certain way, like, like good art would. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's really what I hope for. And there's no way to measure that. Um, but it moves me to my core when I talk with people who tell me that my music is meaningful to them, mm -hmm. um, or, uh, you know, get a, get a note from somebody, um, that, 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 that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. said, I do what I do for me. I yeah. do it because I love, I love it. And, um, so the fact that it has that effect on other people is kind of like the icing on the cake. I mean, I love to create music and uh -huh. make recordings. And so, and I like kind of playing shows, mm. playing shows can be their moments in time though, you know, and, mm. and they can be great or they can be painful. Um, <clears throat> most of the time these days, they're pretty great. I mean, yeah. people show up, they, they want to hear music and it's, and it's good. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. When you look back, over your career and you've been in the thick of it and you've been on the outside of it. I mean, it's been all over the place. What is, what are some of the memories, the biggest memories when you're sitting at home in Minneapolis thinking to yourself, I cannot believe what a life I've had. What are some of the things that pop to mind? I mean, I know the Smiths were big for you. Did you ever meet them? Did you ever, you know, tour with them or REM or Echo and the Bunnymen or any of these people? What, what are those memories? Yeah. Well, it was remarkable to have this huge record deal with Sire Records when I was a teenager. I mean, mm -hmm. that was, to me, in some ways, the pinnacle was the beginning because that's all I ever wanted was to be on a really cool record label, making records, um, you know, having hits on the radio, being on MTV, being on Conan O'Brien, meeting cool people mm -hmm. um, was great. Um, meeting Michael Stipe uh, mm -hmm. was amazing. He was so kind and interesting and gave me a lot of good advice. But I feel like the privilege is just, or the most amazing thing is just the privilege of making music that people care about. Yeah. That, like I said a moment ago, that affects them in some way, like the music that I, uh, that, that affects me. Yeah. And that is a, I guess I feel as an older person, I feel like <clears throat> that is such a, a high calling, a high, mm -hmm um privilege yeah. um and i i need in some ways i need to, i've been talking to myself preaching to myself to make to take that more seriously as i mm. get older because mm. i i think i was a more selfish person when i was younger <laughs> Weren't and, we and all? i still am now of course yeah yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, do you anticipate it being another, you know, many, many years until we see another Ocean Blues album? I don't know if this is the beginning of a creative resurgence or if it's sort of like this is what we do now, one about every five years or so, <laughs> you know? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, this has been a really challenging, like, past couple of years uh, for a lot of us in the band in terms of our, our lives and mm. I think it just kind of depends on uh, it depends on life and, and yeah. what happens and what songs okay. come to us and what opportunities. Um, I, I think I'm going to be making music till the day I die. Yeah. You know, whether it finds its way onto an Ocean Blue record and we put out records and we tour is another question. Um, yeah. You know, and a lot depends. Like, you know, if nobody shows up at our our shows this tour. I'm going to be less inclined to book more shows. Um, <laughs> if no one buys the record or if everybody seems to not think it's a great record, it's going to be less inspiring to, to, to work on more ocean blue stuff. But, yeah. but we'll see. Okay. Um, well, Dave, I know you got to go. I, I could not love you more. I am so grateful. <laughs> I, I mean, you were talking a minute ago about the people who, you know, are impacted by your music. I'm one of those people. I could not, be more grateful to have the ocean blues music in my life for the last 30 years and what it's meant to me and and what you've meant to me and so just thank you for being you um i wish there was more of it but i just i it's still so delicious to me thank you for everything you've put in this world well john that i wow that means a lot i appreciate it thank you very much no problem there you have it dave shelzel one of the greatest bands ever and one of the greatest frontmen ever. Uh, I am so glad this finally worked out. So <laughs> I know it felt, it, to me, it felt a little awkward, but I had always had these two burning questions. Number one, why are you guys so big in Utah? Come to find out he doesn't really know, but they're not really markedly be- bigger there than they are in some other places around the country. I didn't know that, so that's good to know. And then, you know, I figured it out now. Something has just always sounded off to me about that Davy Jones's Locker album. And my friends who are also Ocean Blue fans, we've all sort of, what is the deal? It sounds different. Why do we, why does it sound different? Is it a different approach, different production, different songwriting? What is it? Come to find out it's a bunch of demos. That's why. So anyway, that album has grown on me over the years, but it's just different. And I've never been able to put my finger on why. And I awkwardly found out in this interview. So anyway, thanks again, Dave. And thank you, Noel, for helping point me in the right direction. This was a dream come true. Uh, Now, next week in the States is Independence Day. And so we are going to celebrate with probably the American band of all time. Um, I probably just gave away who it is. So, to, all uh, by the way, right now, I want to close it out with another song of theirs that I love. We didn't touch on the third album quite as much as we probably should have, Beneath the Rhythm and Sound. This is one of my favorite tracks off this album. It's Cathedral Bells. And it's just a perfect example of who these guys are. The literary lyrics, the, uh, the kind of epic sound in the guitar, but also very ethereal. It puts everything that they're good at together in one song. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for putting everything together. Thanks for all you do, buddy. Uh, this week, there will be a bonus material. We have the we have the June Deep Dive coming out uh, later this week. And I think you guys probably know who, well, I'll just tell you. It's Marco Peroni. Marco Peroni from Adam the Ants came back, and we're talking about Kings of the Wild Frontier. So that's what's coming out in a few days. 
Okay? My gift to you. Anyway, thanks, everybody. Uh, oh, Facebook, you know how to find us. You can like our page. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Okay? Thanks, everybody. We love you.